my son Ian is at an age where he lives in a world of imagination. Anything could become anything. Dinner plates are the back end of, of dump trucks. Beds and coffee tables are landing strips for airplanes. The grass in our backyard could be a factory. It could be a, a yard where a pony is grazing. Any number of things are possible in his world. It is, it is fueled by the things he sees, but the possibilities are, are limitless for him. I think it is his glory, one of the things that many of us enjoy about him, those of you who know my son, that he can go into the world in full strength and be excited and participate and imagine great things and great possibilities. It makes me think of the calling we were first all called to in the garden, where the Lord placed us in the garden and called us to just run around and say, Hey, check this out. Dad, Dad, check this out over here. This is so cool. Look what I've been working on. Think about the possibility of what could happen here. Us older people, we still imagine, but I think even more so than him, our, our world, our imagination, is formed by the things we see to the point where it is in some sense held captive. We've been living long enough and we know how the world works and so our imagination inevitably becomes bound and constrained and formed within the world that is. And what I want us to see today is that the world that is isn't really the real world. I want you to I want to invite you to imagine again the way, the way the world really is, the way the world is told to us in these scriptures. Because the world that we live in, the world that seems like it is, is a world of power. We live in the world of power, where powerful people get their way and where the Lord is, is not always with us quite as much as we wish that he was. And if we can't be honest about that, we might as well save our breath. Uh, and if your own life is not enough to prove to you that the Lord is not with you, is not real as much as you wish, then maybe five minutes of TV could accomplish that for you and we see what's happening in the world and some of the things that are on TV, that there is... There's a distance. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Not the way we wish that they were, either in our lives and the world around us. But more than anything, we see the world of power. The world where power makes sense. And power gets with you what you want. I was thinking, as I was preparing this, on the Beatitudes, where Jesus tells us what's blessed. And I tried writing down a little bit of what I think feels like is really real. So this is what I wrote. See, see if this doesn't, this will probably sound strange at first, but, but stay with me. See if this actually doesn't feel more real than what you're used to hearing. Blessed are the strong, for they shall have what they want. Blessed are the confident, for they shall be strong. Blessed are the powerful, for they shall inherit the earth and pass it on to their children. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for more, for they shall receive it. 
Blessed are the ambitious, for they shall be promoted. Blessed are the wise and crafty, for they shall meet the powerful. And that's the way these connections work for us. It made me think of a couple quotes that once disturbed me from theologians reflecting on this. Uh, there's a German theologian who lived through the time of the Second World War. And immediately afterwards, he delivered a set of lectures on what Christianity is. He used the Apostles' Creed as his outline. This is Karl Barth. And when he came to faith, as the Apostles' Creed begins with, I believe, he had a lot to say about what faith is. And this is one of the things he said. And by the way, just for some context, he delivered these lectures in a church that no longer had a roof. It had been bombed out. And in this roofless church, he said to his students gathered around, Christian faith is the gift of the meeting in which men become free to hear the word of grace which God has spoken in Jesus Christ in such a way, and this is key, to hear Jesus Christ in such a way that in spite of everything that contradicts it, they may once for all exclusively entirely hold to his promise and guidance. And around the same period, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, written from the standpoint of the devil, trying to deceive Christians. And he touched on this, this same theme of this tension of living in a world where God does not seem to be real, And again, this is written from the devil's standpoint. This is one devil speaking to another. Be not deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in jeopardy. The devil's cause is never more in jeopardy than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do the enemy's will, the Lord's will, looks around upon a universe in which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken, and still obeys. That both of these theologians, having lived through the Second World War, believed that there was a certain essence to the Christian faith of believing in a world that does not seem to be real. The churches in Revelation, I imagine, had a similar struggle. There are multiple potential dates for when Revelation was written, but whatever date you come to, It's late in the first century. John, who's recording the revelation of Jesus, is the only apostle who's still alive. And as far as we can tell, the rest of them all died violently. The church is in persecution. Many have fallen away from the faith. It has been a long time since Jesus ascended into heaven and said he's coming back. Many perhaps assumed he was coming back right away, and yet 30, 40, maybe 60 years have transpired. The apostles have been killed. There are a few people left who knew the apostles until still tell their stories, and the churches are huddled around in a time of persecution when you could be killed simply for admitting to be a Christian. That Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, And yet, this is what has happened to the church. I think they, even more than us, needed to hear this message. They, but we also, need to have the reset button hit on our imagination. To be able to reimagine the world as it really is, as the scriptures say that it really is.
There were uh, many more than seven churches in Asia Minor and spread throughout the world. But in the Bible, seven is always the number of completeness and fullness. So I think in many ways it's just a sign that this is, this is the revelation of Jesus to all of the churches in all time. So it is also his revelation to us. We need to hear what is really real. And what is really real is not the world of power. What is really real is the world of Jesus. The world of the revelation is the Jesus-centered world. John, who receives the revelation of Jesus, knew him better, perhaps, than anyone else. John knew Jesus well. He walked with him from the beginning as a young man. We are told that John was the disciple Jesus loved. I'm sure that Jesus loved all the disciples, but that had to mean something. Jesus was a man and he had friends. And I think that John was one of them. We are told in another place that at the Last Supper, John reclined against Jesus' breast. Which is uncomfortable for us in our culture because that's not the way we communicate affection. But it worked back then. See if you could grasp what's meant behind this. John and Jesus were close. They were good friends. John knew Jesus, walked with him, knew the things he preferred, his personal tics, his eccentricities, the foods that he liked and didn't like. These were buddies. They liked each other. And even having known Jesus so well and for so long, John turns around and he sees Jesus as he really is. And we immediately hear what we always hear in Scripture when someone sees Jesus for who he really is. Verse 17, When I saw him, my good friend, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. This implies that he was probably afraid. Oftentimes, in the Old Testament and in a number of readings already in the service, you hear the phrase, fear of the Lord. And it's just one of these Hebrew words. It, 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 it means something in Hebrew that's hard to translate. You can't say it doesn't mean fear, because it does. John fell down because he was afraid. But it's, it doesn't necessarily mean the same kind of fear that we mean. That Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't say, don't be afraid. It's more of an appropriate response to meeting the King of Kings, to meeting this man. It is awe and reverence and, yes, fear, but also peace and love and knowing that everything is set right. And what is it that he is afraid of? What has he seen? Well, it starts with a sound. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, that Sunday, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. I want you to notice as we go through this, you will hear the word like over and over again. Like this, like that, like this, like that. And here's my takeaway. That John saw what he saw, his good friend Jesus, as he really is. And if you were to ask him what he saw, he may say, I, ah, ah, I, 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 it was like a trumpet. It was like, there's nothing, there's no way to, to communicate it. It's incommunicable. 
But you can, you can take some, some shots at it with the word. It was, it was a little bit like this. And so that's one of the things that will help us with some of this bizarre and intense imagery. It's, John is, is searching. How do I describe? It's indescribable. It's, it's overwhelming. His voice, it was like a trumpet. It was the word coming out from the mouth of the king himself. So he turned to see, he turns to see the voice. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. We'll talk about these a little bit later. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And in the midst of the lampstands, centered among them, one like a son of man. He borrows Jesus' own favorite phrase for himself, the son of man. Which comes from Daniel, who also saw a vision of the same Jesus as he really was, and used the same. It was was like a son of man. It was kind of like a person clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The robe we hear in other places in Scripture is white, and the golden sash in one of our readings this morning is called the sash of faithfulness. He is arrayed in garments that are like the sun compared to the shining of the lamp. It is, as John said in his own gospel, the light of the world. He's looking at the source of the light, more full of light than the sun itself. The hairs of his head were white, which in a culture where being elderly is every bit as prized as being 17 is in our culture. If you can picture a culture where it's desirable to be older because you've experienced your wise and white hair is your glory. It's the symbol of the experience and wisdom that you have that Jesus, who has been alive since before the beginning of the age, since forever, if anyone has experience and wisdom, this is him. His hair is fully white. The man has wisdom. Can you imagine what it would be like to have a president who always made decisions that were so wise you were blown away that you heard his, his judgments, his statutes, his executive orders, and every time you thought, wow, who could have come up with something that good? This is that man. His hair is white with wisdom. White like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Probably because they see everything. Through walls and through flesh, into your mind. A little bit like Galadriel from The Lord of the Rings. For those of you who have seen the movies. A stare that you just can't, can't look back at it. Because he knows everything. Nothing is hidden from the king. It's not... A judgmental staring, at least for his own people, he says to John that he need not be afraid, and yet nothing is hid from his sight. Fire is also a sign of purity and of burning away that which is not good, and so he looks out with a gaze that both sees and purifies. His feet were like burnished bronze. In this day, bronze is strong. It's refined in fire. 
You use it in war against your enemies. There's a couple potential analogies here for the bronze feet. I think they're probably both true. One of them is that you use bronze in war to crush your enemies, and so the feet of the king are made of bronze, and he will trod over his enemies, and he will crush them. Because even his feet are forged in the fire. He does have the power. Also, feet are used in the prophet's imagery for treading out the grapes of wrath, imagery that was picked up in an American song from the time of the Civil War, that he's the king of wisdom, he's the king who sees and knows everything, and he's the king who will bring justice to bear. It is, I think, an uncomfortable subject for many of us. Uh, we live in a time where we kind of want to all get along. And that's, that's right. There, there is a true side to that in Scripture. But we, we need to live in a world of justice. You, you do not want to live in a world where every possibility is equally as good and there's nothing to say about anything, where there's no possibility of justice or right and wrong. That is not the world you want to live in. You need and want a king who will come back and he will set things right. The scary part is he may have to set things right in our own life. And that's why Revelation talks so much about the blood of the Lamb, that we are, in a sense, protected from his own justice. There's, I think, something biblical about looking at justice and desiring justice and saying, this must be done, and even if I get crushed, so be it. Just let the world be put right. These bronze feet are the yes to that desire. Justice is coming. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. It says that out of his mouth came the two-edged sword. Other parts of scripture talk about the word being sharper than a two-edged sword, which divides between bone and marrow. The scripture says about itself, there's something powerful about these words, that these words And these scriptures and this story are different from other words. And here is where we learn part of the reason why, because they are the words of Jesus himself. That Isaiah wrote Isaiah, and Moses wrote Genesis, and John wrote the Gospel of John. But it's all the revelation of Jesus. These are his words. They have come out of his mouth, and at last we get to hear them directly from his mouth. They come out like like the sword with its, its righteous judgments, its, its clarity, its perfection, in accordance with the wisdom from his hair and the power from his feet and the seeing from his eyes. This is a vision of the Jesus who really is. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last, the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. We are promised in Scripture that new life is what's coming to all of us, and Jesus is the first one that gets to taste it. We talked a little bit about this last week. He is telling us, I have captured something. I've won it, and I'm going to share it with you, and you need to know that I have it. Death, not a deal for me anymore. I am not afraid of death. 
and soon neither will you be. We need to see Jesus as he really is. Second thing I want us to see is Jesus and the church. Because the lampstands, he tells us himself, he wants us to know the lampstands are the church. The church is. That Jesus is the light of the world. And he told his apostles themselves, you are a light. That he came bringing light with himself and he shared it with the apostles. And now he says the churches themselves are a source of light in the world. That each church, each community of faith in every place is, as it were, a light, a candle lit in a dark place. He himself is the full sun shining in full strength, which thankfully (laughs) outshines our light. But we still are lights spread around in a circle, geographically all over Asia, symbolically for geographically all over the world. Lights here, lights in Tokyo, lights in Africa, little communities of faith, his people, that these seven churches battered, their leaders having been killed, threatened with persecution, they are his treasured lights in the world. And each one of the churches has an angel that watches over it. And this is the thing that was most remarkable to me in reading and studying this passage, is that I've read it numerous times and heard Jesus explain the lampstands are the churches and the stars are the angels of the churches. And I've always assumed, pictured in my mind, Jesus in the middle of the lampstands and the lampstands with a little star above the lampstands. But that's not where the star is. Where are the seven stars of the seven churches? In the hand of the king. That he who has all power and authority over all earthly kings, all wisdom, all goodness, all might, holds in his very hand the spirits of the seven churches. Sometimes churches survive. Sometimes they die. I don't know if I'm entirely okay with Jesus letting churches die, but he does sometimes. In fact, these seven churches, they're gone. I've never been to the Middle East, but I've heard that if you want to know where these churches met, all you need to do is go find the mosque in that town. Because that is where the churches used to meet. Uh, There are still Christians there, but it is part of our story that the Holy Spirit comes and goes and moves in different places. But we need to remember, come what may, that the stars are in the hand of the king. And nothing will happen that he is not okay with. That you yourself and us as a community, we are in his hand. And as we seek to follow him and live him and love him and serve him around the world, flying to and from different places, we are in the palm of his hands. That he is the Jesus who is. We live in the Jesus-centered world where everything as Colossians says, was made by him and through him and is for him. It's all his stuff. That the church is in his hand. We are in his care. Do we need another airplane illustration? All right, this is the last one, I promise, for a long time, but I got to do one more. So I'm not a pilot. I've never flown an airplane, but I am told that flying at night is a tremendously disorienting experience. 
particularly in a storm. And then when you can't see anything, and your aircraft is being jostled around, your inner ear, where your balance is centered, can tell you things that are not true. And so one of the great tricks, the skills you must learn as a pilot, is to read your instruments and trust them. And when your senses, your five senses, communicate to you information different from your instruments, you must trust your instruments and, in a sense, look at your senses and say, no, 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 no. I'm not hearing you. You are telling me we're heading up, but my artificial horizon is telling me we're heading down fast, so I am going to pull up. That is the way to survive when you're a pilot. So when I... I'm saying, when Jesus is saying that we must have our imaginations reset, we are not, away from what our senses and our experience in the world tell us, it's like that. It's not that we must move to an imaginary land, a happy place that will get us through the present world. It's that your senses are not telling you the right thing. That the instruments, this is the real, real. Jesus, with the white hair and the golden sash and the fiery eyes, that is the real world. I want to invite you to believe in these instruments, to live in that world. If the world began with a bang, it's headed towards a big crunch, I suppose, and that's kind of the story. But if the world began with Jesus saying, let it be, and it was, and it ends with the great king, then this is our story. This is the reality. We are headed towards a land where he will be with us and put his hand on his shoulder and say, fear not, for I am the first and the last. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I want to close with one illustration. But what I think it might mean for us to have imaginations retuned around the real real, the revelation real. I was reading a book recently about children. And it keyed me into the fact that my little son is a little bit of a know-it-all. That he wants to help me in the kitchen. He wants to cut things with a large knife and cook things in the hot pot and do whatever I do and he doesn't want to know how to do them. He already knows how to do them. And as his father, I long to hear him sometimes say, I don't know. Would you please teach me how to do this? It's been a source of great and exceeding exasperation in our household. But the other thing this book reminded me is that he probably learned that or inherited it from me. Because sometimes he still does ask questions, and he actually asks questions more often than I do, that I'm a recovering know-it-all. I love to know all the answers, to not be exposed as someone who doesn't know. I'm meeting you for the first time. Where are you from? Temecula. Oh, great! As if I know where that is. (laughs) Could not find it on a map. These are the little things I do. Preaching for a long time has made me powerfully uncomfortable. Because when you're up here, you know that you don't know. 
and yet I'm communicating about the word of life. We as a church are communicating about the word of life, and I need to know that I, that I know. And I've begun to find comfort in knowing that I don't know, but the king does know. That I want my son to become small. And my king, my father, wants for me to become small. Because if he is great, if the world of power is not the real world, if the Jesus-centered world is the real world, then, it, then he can be great. And as soon as he's great, it's okay for me to be small. It's okay for me to not know. It's okay for me to need. It's okay for me to be afraid. It's okay for me to call out on my father. And if I did believe that he was big, that I lived in a big Jesus-centered world, and that I was small, it would set me free to talk to him more and be way less anxious than I am. So I want to invite all of us this morning. I think this, this scripture, I think Jesus himself wants to invite us to reimagine the Jesus-centered world and to embrace the comfort, the security, the hope that comes with smallness. With being able to say, as Todd said earlier in our confession of sin, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know when he will come back. But he does. He has the white hair and the fiery eyes and the bronze feet. Let's be small for a minute and pray before our king and feed us the meal that he has for us. Lord.